Router's under attack. A bug that's helpful? And bad guys leaking info about other bad guys. I'm Doug, that's Paul. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. And Paul, we'd like to start the show with a fun fact. And I'd like to remind everyone that as the story goes, in early 2010, a computer programmer in Florida traded 10,000 bitcoins to have two pizzas delivered to him from the Papa John's pizza chain. At today's Bitcoin value, that would be just north of $450 million, almost half a billion with a B dollars. Yeah, but that's two pizzas, right? Yeah, you got two of them. Were they they family size? Were they like giant? And how do you tip? Probably tipped in cash or tipped them, you know, maybe 100 bitcoins. Yeah, just 100. But I think, uh, as we discussed off the air, uh, he, he would have sold those bitcoins a, a thousand times over. Yes, I always think that. Oh golly, why didn't I mine a few in two thousand and nine and a half or whenever I could have? When they got to forty dollars each, I would have been running around saying to everyone, "Look what an investor I am! Oh look, I got two hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the pub." And yep, uh, yeah, you have to have no regrets. Like I didn't yep. buy Apple stock when I should have either. But I did go to the pub with the $3 instead. And that's just sometimes how life is. Having said that, Doug, $200 million for a pizza. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you well, like that? He I... says he doesn't regret it and um, has gone on to say that uh, Bitcoin is a vehicle for greed, which he may have a point. I remember thinking it was over overpriced at $30 a coin yeah. back when I first really heard about it, and uh, it shows how smart I am. But. The first time I thought this is crazy was at $400, and I knew that I would never have made it that far. I mean, I would have sold it <laughs> years before. So uh-huh. my no regrets moment came then. There but you imagine, go. you know, look, honey, we made ten grand, and then uh, five or six or eight years later, like, oh, it could have been hundreds of times that, but yeah. Um, let's talk about these routers. These routers are uh, susceptible to attack, and there's lots of them, which leads us to believe that maybe it's not the router manufacturers to blame here. So Evan Grant, a researcher at the network security scanning company Tenable, many of our listeners will have heard of them, decided, let's have a go at hacking a home router. Not a specific router under contract to look for bugs, just what tools, what techniques, what tricks can you use if you want to examine a router. Things went quite well, and pretty soon Grant had found out how to connect a debugging port onto the router circuit board, get a root shell, and dump files including HTTPD, which is the common name for a home or a small business router web server. HTTPD stands for HTTP daemon, and that means basically the background service that provides HTTP, either web. And, well, there was a bug in it, uh, what's called a directory traversal vulnerability. Those of you who know your vulns will know that's really an old school bug. Shouldn't have it in modern code. That's where you have a, a you know, you have a file name and you put in something like images slash dot dot slash dot dot slash dot dot to go up a directory going up a directory and you're trying to escape from the directory where the web server is supposed to corral itself for security reasons and you go up 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 in the directory tree until you get to the root directory and then you go down somewhere else into places you shouldn't be and the reason this bug 
was still in there is it seems it's actually been around in this and the other router models since about 2008. As you can imagine, Grant figured, I'd better report it. So looked at the router, manufacturer's name on it, reported it to the vendor who just happened to be Buffalo. No particular disrespect to Buffalo here. They got the report. And just when the date when it would be okay to disclose the vulnerability was coming up, Grant realized, hang on, this isn't so much a router bug as a bug in commonly used firmware that's been licensed to dozens of different routers. And Tenable now have a report up which details the routers that they know of that have this problem in. And there are 37 different products on the list. And some of them don't come from vendors that you associate with making routers or computer hardware. They include ISPs who license the firmware into a router and then ship it as the standard router when a new customer comes along. And those ISPs come from all over the world, including BT, Deutsche Telekom, KPN, that's in the Netherlands, O2, Orange, Telecom Argentina, Telmex, Telstra, that's from ours, Telus, Verizon, Vodafone. So there's a laundry list of different routers. And suddenly this is maybe a little bit more of a problem than you might otherwise have thought. Because with this particular bug, which now has a, a vulnerability number, it's CVE-2021-20091. You can, in theory, get unauthenticated access to a router via HTTP. And what that means is that, in theory, you may be able to take over a router as soon as you've got a foothold on the LAN, I, any computer that happens to be connected to the network would let you into the router. Or if the router is accessible for administration on the WAN, on the, on the outside, the internet-facing interface, then a crook could come in from the outside. And the follow-up to that is no sooner had Tenable written this up, detailed the manufacturers, explained how this all worked, what you could do to look for it, than another security company, in this case it was Juniper, I think, published a report saying, by the way, two days on and it looks like the crooks are trying this. Oh, jeez. So it seems that because this is a comparatively easy one to exploit on a system that hasn't been patched, you can see why coronavirus home working days, why crooks might be more interested than they were two years ago about getting a foothold on your home router because it gets them closer to your work laptop on your home network, doesn't it? Well, this is tricky because do I want my ISP, which happens to be Verizon, my router's not affected, but do I want Verizon to toil away at custom firmware for each of their different model of routers, or do I want them to use what should be a tried and true kind of standards-based firmware that other ISPs and other hardware manufacturers are using? So you kind of you want them to leverage something that should be working properly across a wide array of products, but then you get a bug like this that affects the firmware, and you're in this situation. So that's tough. Yes, this is a perennial problem in cybersecurity, isn't it? It's the same sort of problem you have when you're building a software product that requires, say, some kind of text processing mm -hmm. library, other libraries, yeah, or cryptographic routines or whatever. Do you pick a library of your own 
subject it to your own testing and build it into your product so you can control it closely? Or do you use a DLL or a shared library that's probably on most systems, whether it's Mac, Linux, Windows, that everyone else is using so that if there's a bug in it, then Microsoft can fix it and fix it for everybody in one go, or Apple can fix it, or OpenSSL can fix it. For example, with OpenSSL, if you compile it into your code, then you can build it to have only the features you need. You can apply your own special security patches. But then every time there's a bug in OpenSSL that gets patched, you have to reissue your product because you built it in. Or do you say, okay, I'll go with everybody else. It's a greater exposure to the risk in the first place, but a much faster fix when a bug gets reported. There is no one-size-fits-all answer to that. Having said that, in this case, it would have been nice if somebody other than Evan Grant <laughs> had <laughs> looked and found the bug, you know, maybe back in 2009, sure. 2010, when pizza still cost 5,000 bitcoins each. <laughs> but no. that's not what happened. Okay, so this bug exists. It uh, is affecting it dozens of products. And... Yes, it, and it may affect people who say, oh, I didn't buy a, a router from Asus or Buffalo mm -hmm. or anyone like that. I got mine from my ISP. Nope. And I have my ISP is on the list, like yours. Yeah. Uh, and when I went to look at my router, I picked it up, the actual router. On the outside, it doesn't have a sticker that says the circuit board was made by such and such a company. The firmware comes from such and such a company. And the model number that they would use is such and such. So there's no external indication of whether it's vulnerable or not. The way I dealt with that is, and recommending that you can do this in the article, is I went to my router's info page in the management console. Unfortunately, that doesn't tell you who made the router, who made the firmware, and what the model number is, but it does uh, give the current firmware version. And the way that that string, that that text is formatted, is completely unlike any of the buggy router firmwares on Tenable's lists, from which I have inferred, hopefully correctly, that my router is unaffected. Then the next thing you can do, which you put in the article, based on Tenable's analysis of this, we've got some tips whereby basically you can safely, you're not trying to crash your router, you can safely probe your own router from your own network using a simple command line tool like curl, or even with a browser if you wish. And what you do is you try and visit a page that you know exists. Then you try and visit it using this exploit trick, the directory traversal trick, and it should succeed in one case and fail in the other. If it succeeds in both cases, then you know you have a problem because you have this or another very similar vulnerability in your router, and then it's time to call the vendor, get on your ISP's website or whatever. So there are some things you can do to protect yourself. And of course, the third thing you can do, even if you are certain that you're not on the list in this case, is use this as a little prod with a pointy stick to go into your own router and check when the last time was that yours got an update. So that is a third bit of advice. Find out if you're vulnerable based on model number, do a probe of your router if you're technically inclined, or maybe get someone who can help you if you're worried. And thirdly, whether you're affected or not, go and check whether you have got the 
most recent version of your own Rutus firmware, because if there is an update and you haven't applied it, you're just playing into the hands of the crooks. And then we've got a couple of tips on uh, remote access features on your router. Oh, yes, that's right. This bug is much more of a risk if your router's management interface, the web console, is available from outside on the WAN, on the internet side of your router. Most home routers these days, typically, they have five network ports on the back, usually. Four of them are to connect to your own stuff, like your printers, your high-speed NAS devices inside. And the last one, sometimes it's even a different color, is the one that you, you, you plug into the wall. That's the outside connection. And most routers these days do come that that outside connection will not accept web logins. However, many, if not most routers, do allow that as a feature just in case you want it. And if it is turned on on your router and you don't need other people to come and help you manage the router from a distance, then having it turned on is needlessly increasing your attack surface area. And we're assuming that's why the crooks are loving to probe for this because it's really easy for them to find out which routers are listening, and once they found them, which ones have this vulnerability. So don't leave your router open to the outside unless you need to. And the flip side of that is never open up your router to remote access because someone gets in contact with you and tells you to do so. And as unlikely as that sounds, that is exactly how those tech support scams work, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Somebody emails you or they call you up. Hey, you've got a problem. Often they'll lie to you and they'll say, I'm with Microsoft. I'm with Google. They claim to be from your ISP. Sometimes they even say they're from the police. You've got a virus. You're doing network bad stuff. You've got to fix your computer. You could get prosecuted. You could get fined. You could get thrown off the Internet. All of that stuff with increasing levels of pressure. And what they want you to do is they're figuring, well, let's get you to open up your computer or your router by turning off one of the security settings that was enabled by default, and then the crooks could have open slather. If you do get a call like that, no matter how aggressive these guys get, and they can be really, really pushy and aggressive, don't be intimidated. Delete the email, hang up the call, contact someone you know and trust, and ask them instead, because then at least you'll get a fair and objective answer. And we've given this advice before, but if you're a programmer, verify all your input, please. <laughs> yes, it seems like, was it last week we were saying that, weren't we? Yeah, and every week before. I'm thinking that there's a story coming up in a couple of minutes on this very podcast hmm. where we shall have to say exactly the same thing again, but I'm ahead of myself now. Indeed, if you're a programmer, validate thine input. And in particular, anything that comes over a network, you must assume that somebody may have structured that data specifically to booby trap it to probe for vulnerabilities and exploit them if they're there. And things like system commands, directory names and file names, like in this case, it's something with a dot dot slash in it that says go up a directory when you're not supposed to. You need to check for those. And if you're making assumptions, then you are putting your users at risk. Okay, uh, that is Home and Small Business Routers Under Attack, How to See if You Are at Risk on NakedSecurity.Sophos.com. I wish we pronounced it routers here in the U.S. because I say Route 66, and which is the fastest route, but I'm stuck calling it a router. Yes, to us, a router is a mechanical device that puts a nice edge on a piece of wood. 
We have those too. It's confusing. Like a milling a milling wheel. Yeah, they're called routers. Yeah, don't We're, confuse them, folks. Routers and routers. Yeah, do not. You will not get internet access from a uh, wood milling router. So let's move on to this. Uh, there's this Cobalt Strike network attack tool that has a bug in its server code. But this bug might be a feature, depending on who you ask. This is an interesting story. <laughs> oh, dear, yes. This comes from uh, researchers at a company called Sentinel-1, who were looking into the Cobalt Strike code. Now, many of our listeners will have heard of Cobalt Strike. And in fact, many people might not realize that it's actually software you can go out and buy although you can't just download a trial version and the company doesn't just sell it to anybody because it's meant to be what's called a threat emulation tool or you use it for penetration testing. So it's basically a tool that if crooks got hold of it, they could use it to co-opt you into a botnet like a zombie network and do remote control. And the Cobalt Strike product comes with the bots, the, the beacons as they call them, that you, that you sneakily put around on someone's network and the server code, the command and control server, that listens out for these things calling home and saying, hi, boss, what devious thing should I do next? Or, hey, look at this Look at this screenshot I took. I'm uploading it to you. So these researchers were looking at this code because, of course, the crooks, believe it or not, have found out ways that they can get around the licensing restrictions, basically by stealing the code and using it anyway. And these, the Sentinel-1 researchers decided, well, let's have a look at the, not at the beaconing code, the zombie code that you actually implant on a computer to get it to call home and give away secrets from inside your network, the sort of data ex exfiltration command downloading part. They started looking at the server that you, you stick somewhere on the network where you can collect all the data that you're thieving from the network that you've intruded. And they, they discovered that there was a rather embarrassing bug in that server-side code, and we're going to come to validating inputs right now, because <laughs> when one of these beacon zombie data-stealing agent things had a screenshot that it had sneakily taken on a victim's computer and wanted to upload it, it would call home to the Cobalt Strike server, and it would say, screenshot coming, and then it would send a four-byte binary number that was the size of the screenshot, and then it would send that many bytes worth of screenshot. The problem is that in four bytes, uh, a U32, an unsigned 32-bit integer, you can specify a file size of almost but not quite four gigabytes. In fact, four gig minus one byte. So <laughs> what the researchers found is they could create a fake beacon or bot zombie that could say, hey, I've got these screenshots. Here come, say, 10 screenshots. Each one is three gigabytes in size. And unfortunately, the server would go, okay, blindly trust it, because obviously, figures, this is coming from one of my own beacons. So however much memory it was told was needed for the screenshot, it would immediately reserve up front so that it could just then receive that much data and stick it into memory. So it turns out that you could get a Cobalt Strike server to pre-allocate gigabytes and gigabytes and gigabytes of RAM, which even on a very powerful modern server with loads of memory, you could actually overcommit yourself right away. And of course, that causes a so-called denial of service or crash-tastic bug. And as you say, the question is, 
is that a bug? Because obviously you're poking a knitting needle into somebody else's server to cause it to crash on purpose. Or is it a feature? Because the underlying purpose of Cobalt Strike, even if it is used lawfully by a penetration tester, is to exfiltrate data from your network, like screenshots. And so would crashing one of those servers, if you found that your network was leaking data to it, would that be considered a bug or a feature? So if you are a genuine Cobalt Strike user, then you should upgrade to version 4.4. If you are a cyber crook <laughs> who is relying on a pirated version of Cobalt Strike, then you want 4.3 or earlier, please. <laughs> Do not update. That's yeah. good advice. So that was, it was, it's somewhat lighthearted bug and they gave it a lighthearted name. They called it Hot Cobalt. But it is a reminder that code that's been around for a while, just like we spoke of before with the buggy routers, can have really elementary style bugs in it that nobody notices for ages. So one of those interesting issues in cybersecurity. Well, it raises the question, is, is it okay to poke a stick where the beacons are pointing in this case? Or, or is it smart? Doug, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't answer that. <laughs> but I guess if you knowingly poke a stick at a server that is not your own, even if you suspect that that server is being run by cyber criminals, then you could end up answering for it in court if something horrible goes wrong. For example, you can imagine a situation where a crook figures, I know, I want to lure you into doing something you'll later regret. So I'll scatter some beacons on your network. I'll scatter some servers that they talk to on other networks that I happen to have control of. And then I'll duck my head behind the parapet and I'll wait for you to do naughty things against other people's servers and basically implement an attack against somebody who is themselves an innocent and unknowing victim of the crooks. So that's the problem with sort of online vigilante behavior, hacking back. It can work really well and defend us, but it can also cause all sorts of problems. And as we've spoken about on this podcast before, when law enforcement groups uh, like the Dutch police have done this, the FBI have done this, when they want to do hacking back of this sort, even they're not allowed just to do it. Even if they know jolly well that it's crooks involved, they have to go to a court and get approval, get a, basically get a warrant to be allowed to do this kind of thing. So my advice is, as tempting as it sounds, if you're the blue team in your company, taking out the servers without being absolutely sure of yourself and without having authorization to do so could land you in hot water. So you could end up getting caught because presumably you're not trying to hide yourself. You're doing this overtly where the crooks themselves can just run and hide. All right. Be careful out there, folks. Cobalt Strike Network Attack Tool Patches Crash-tastic Server Bug. That's on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Oh, and Doug, as you forgot to mention, if you are a programmer, Oh, of course. Check thine inputs. <laughs> Please do. Because this was all about getting a number. Hey, three billion bytes of memory. Yeah, you can have that. Yeah, oh, come on in. three billion. No problem. Sure. No problem at all. Don't do that. <laughs> it ends in tears quickly, even on a powerful server. Sure does. Okay, let's take a quick break for This Week in Tech History. This Week in Tech History, August 14th, 1982, was officially designated 
as National Navajo Code Talkers Day here in the U.S. A proclamation by then-President Ronald Reagan reads, in part, In the midst of the fighting in the Pacific during World War II, a gallant group of men from the Navajo Nation utilized their language in coded form to help speed the Allied victory. Equipped with the only foolproof, unbreakable code in the history of warfare, the code talkers confused the enemy with an earful of sounds never before heard by code experts. The dedication and unswerving devotion to duty sworn by the men of the Navajo Nation in serving as radio code talkers in the Marine Corps during World War II should serve as a fine example for all Americans. So, Paul, let us now discuss what this has to do with technology. Well, Doug, my understanding is that the the British and indeed the U.S. I I presume they that they weren't the same devices, but I presume they shared ideas. Actually, had quite strong enciphering machines during the Second World War, stronger even than Enigma, but they were cumbersome. You know, they weren't handheld devices and trying to use one in the field was just not practical in a theatre of war like the Pacific, where a lot of the fighting was hand-to-hand stuff on small jungle-filled Pacific islands. The powers that be were at a loss to know how to be able to transmit messages securely under the stress of fighting in these terrible conditions. And they're also aware that if they just used English, which was the common language for all their troops, they had the problem that a lot of Japanese officers had studied in the US, say in the 1930s, and actually spoke English fluently. And even by using weird dialect words or putting on extreme accents or you know inventing their own cant way of talking, they'd still give enough away in the heat of battle. And so they figured we need, a, we need to find people who are American, whom we trust, but who speak a language that is effectively encrypted or enciphered or encoded in itself because it is insufficiently known by anybody outside America. And up to the plate, bless their hearts, as you say, stepped very many people from the Navajo Nation, whose language was considered very complicated for adult learners to master. So if you if you learned it from birth, people can easily learn their native language. But apparently studying it as an adult was extremely difficult because the language was quite complex. The Navajo Nation had a strong oral history, so they hadn't bothered with writing things down. They were used to remembering, speaking and being inventive and creative with their language. And so they did some tests to see whether the cryptography, the code-breaking experts of the day, listening for the first time in their lives to native speakers of Navajo speaking at speed, could make out what they were saying. And they decided that it was essentially complicated enough that it could act as a code or a cipher in its own right. And that is exactly what these guys did. They trained up as infantrymen and they went out to the Pacific Theatre. They were troops because when battle came down, they would have to fight just like anybody else. But the rest of the time, they were there talking to each other, using words that they decided on to represent modern military stuff that had no equivalent in the Navajo language, using words that 
even someone who knew a bit of Navajo probably wouldn't figure out what the metaphor was about. They developed a disguised phonetic alphabet so they could spell out words that they didn't have a word for. And apparently it was 100% successful. And from the references that I've read, uh, including Khan's book, The Code Breakers, and Simon Singh's book, The Code Book, contact was made with uh, some Japanese code, senior Japanese codebreaker after the war who admitted they got nowhere. It did actually keep the messages private for all the time that was required. So they were basically human cipher machines working under the most extreme pressure you can possibly imagine. Fascinating. Kind of like some oral cryptography. Yes. Obviously, given enough time, given enough effort, you could figure it out because there wasn't a key that they could change. But they were able to adapt. Hey, let's introduce new phonetic words for the letter A, for the letter E, for the, letter, the common letters, just to mix things up a bit. So, yeah, it meant that units to whom these guys were attached didn't have to lug around cipher equipment that was A, much, much slower at transmitting and receiving messages, B, highly prone to mistakes under battle conditions, and C, just wasn't practicable in the kind of conditions that they were fighting in on the islands. Lest we forget, Doug. Really good. Uh, speaking of fighting, there is no honor among thieves, as they say, Paul, and this next story features an irony within an irony. Oh. <laughs> I think I shouldn't laugh. Why am I laughing, Doug? <laughs> well, it's sort of, you, you talk about the, the, the Conti gang, aren't you? Mm -hmm, they they do ransomware known as Conti. Yes, it seems that one of the insiders, not the inside insiders, not the core group who actually write the ransomware, keep hold of the decryption keys, collect the bitcoins and disperse the earnings to their affiliates. But one of the affiliates kind of fell out with them a bit on a cybercrime forum and uh, had a wee little bit of a rant about how affiliates in the Conti group were getting ripped off. And it seems something I've long wondered about is that because the core crooks are the ones that negotiate the ransom, accept the payment, and then pay out 70% to the affiliate, how can the affiliate ever be sure exactly. that they're getting 70% of what the victim actually paid mm -hmm. or 70% of some deflated alternative figure? And apparently, uh, let me read it out. According to website The Record, who translated a screenshot, which I imagine was written in Russian, what this uh, disaffected affiliate said roughly goes as follows. Yes, of course they recruit suckers and divide the money among themselves, and the boys are fed with what they will let them know when the victim pays. And then that person's next post was... Here are the, here's the documentation. Here are the operating manuals and the software that they provide and hmm. dumped an 81 megabyte archive file called operating manuals and software dot ra, except written in Russian. So as hmm. you say, yes, a little bit of a little bit of dishonor among thieves. You don't see that terribly often in, aired in public, but it seems in this case, somebody was trying to tell other affiliates, we're getting ripped off. 
by crooks. Who knew? So this file that was leaked, this does not contain the uh, cryptographic keys to all these ransomware attacks. This is mostly like, here's how to pull off this type of attack. Here's what's going to happen. Here's how you get in, that kind of stuff. Like an instruction manual, if you will. Yes. So there's some good news and some bad news, as often happens in the cybersecurity world. The good news is that this leak won't teach other budding cyber criminals terribly much that they didn't already know. As you say, the bad news of that is, although it looks like one cyber criminal turning against the core of the ransomware gang, the leak doesn't contain what you might at first have hoped when you heard that the leak had happened. So as you say, no decryption keys for people who've already been hit and haven't paid up yet. And as far as we can tell, no identifying information that might help law enforcement get onto these guys more quickly. Well, there, we do have a uh, file called diesophos.bat, so we got that going for us. We're, we've made the big time of this info dump. Yes, die, capital letters, sophos, little letters, dot bat, is one of several tools that are in there for what, what, what I call anti-antivirus. There are basically various tools that you can use to kill off various uh, threat protection software that's out there. If you're a threat researcher, this is a this is a tricky ethical issue. You don't actually want to be on the crooks list because why tell all the crooks in the world if you don't have to? On the other hand, Doug, there is nothing more galling than being considered so small time that you don't make their list of <laughs> products they find a challenge. Uh -huh. So the good news is that the, the techniques there in that bat there's something that you could figure out for yourself easily enough if you wanted. And uh, the other good news is we do have a feature in our product called Tamper Protection, which aims to stop even somebody who is already an administrator using unofficial, undocumented, unloggable ways of messing with the product. In other words, if you try and kill the product through a side door, if you like, then the product will detect and will log that fact, alert you, and ideally start it up again. Now, my understanding is if you do have temper protection turned on, then the die sophos.bat and the other tools that are Sophos specific in there will not work. So if you are a Sophos customer and you're not using temper protection, which is it's basically a way of stopping somebody, even if they've got administrator powers, from just messing with the product because, hey, administrators should be allowed the power to do everything anytime they want. Now, some people, I think they resist temper protection in products because they figure, well, it adds a little bit of hassle. If we actually want to undo it, then there's a whole procedure and it could involve things like two-factor authentication and it involves a little bit of extra hassle with the help desk. So we're not going to do it. It's inconvenient. Well, the good news is that that little bit of inconvenience actually can provide a great deal of extra protection, as well as early warning that somebody is trying to do something dodgy. Because if you get a log that says someone tried to stop the product in a completely unauthorized way, we've started it again, but you should go and investigate because there's probably more to it than that. And that's why products like ours have temper protection, even though at first blush, to some people, kind of feels like a hassle they don't need. In my opinion, it's a very small hassle that's very well worth what you get back from it.
Okay, and we have some advice for the good people. I'll start it off with saying if you're a programmer, verify those inputs. Yes, who would have thought? <laughs> That's exactly right. The other advice, obviously, that I've basically touched on when talking about temper protection, but this applies whether you use a product that has temper protection or not, whether you use a Sophos product or not, is that if you get an alert of something like Cobalt Strike, well, that's one of the tools that was dumped, actually. Ironically, the tools that this crook published included a pirated version of Cobalt Strike. And yes, <laughs> it's one of the buggy ones. It's version 4.0. Yep, keep so using if that. You if, must use, if you must use Cobalt Strike without authorization, at least use the bad one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it, it's a great reminder because if you look at all these techniques, tools, and procedures that are in these documents, you'll see that they cover a great many things that many or most security tools will try to warn you about. So that includes things like somebody trying to suck passwords out of memory, somebody trying to do an unauthorized shutdown of security tools, somebody trying to introduce and use well-known hacking tools, network scans that are obviously designed to find specific devices like backup devices or routers or VPN servers where they have no reason to do that trying to set up processes that would become backdoors to let them in later, launching well-known exploits to see what happens, doing privilege escalation to become administrator in a completely unauthorized way. If you get any sign that any of those are happening in your network and it's not your own sysadmins doing it, then even if your security software says, hey, we found someone tampering with Sophos, we block the attempt, we remove the software, we fix the problem. That doesn't mean it's done and dusted for you because what you've still got is advance warning that something bad is going on. Probably that someone who shouldn't be there is already lurking somewhere inside your network. And basically, this gives you an early warning that you want to go and get rid of them fully rather than just going, oh, they tried something. We detected it automatically. We remediated it. We don't have to worry until they try again. Why wait? Why not go after them right away? All right. That is uh, Conti Ransomware Affiliate Goes Rogue Leaks Gang Data on NakedSecurity.Sophos.com. And when that leak came out, I'm sure there were some people saying, oh, no, which brings us to our oh, no. Oh, Doug. Uh, that was like a six out of ten. I was 10. wondering how you are going to do that one. I wouldn't say it's your best. No, yeah. I, it took me by surprise, which I think. It's kind of mailing it in there. Is a good sign. Well, this is a good oh no. I like this one. Uh, on Reddit, Norsk God Loki writes, we had a complaint that all the lights on a desk phone started coming on and the ringer would occasionally make noise whenever the CEO left his office. If he was sitting in his chair, everything worked just fine. We replaced the phone, same problem. Replaced it again, same problem. Proceeded to replace the wiring. So we replaced the same CEO. Problem into a Finally, a higher level tech was sent out and checked everything. He sat in the chair and the problem went away. He got up and moved, and the problem manifested itself. Looking out the window at nearby buildings, he could see a microwave antenna pointed in his direction. He paid a visit to that business and found out that they had recently put in a point-to-point -point microwave to connect two of their offices, which were in different buildings but had line of sight between each other, except for a building in between that jutted out a bit. Well, our CEO was in the corner office of that building and the yeah, microwave. Yeah, the one with the cool one with two windows, right? Exactly. Oh, of course. Gotta. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So our CEO was sitting in the corner office of that building, and the microwave was just clipping his office. There was enough power to light the lights on his phone, so the CEO was getting microwave energy whenever he was in his office. He was slowly being cooked on low power. He was a bit steamed when he found out, pun intended. Oh, yeah, I would be too. Dear. I don't want to be microwaved. It's funny that these days you'd probably spot that immediately because buying, owning, and operating radio frequency scanners is really common these days, but for exactly the opposite reason. You want to detect why your wireless signal is so weak, <laughs> mm -hmm. not why it's so strong. So by the description of the microwave antenna, the site-to-site the -site thing that's being used here, can you kind of tell how long ago this was? We've got 5G, we've got Wi-Fi, we've got pretty good ways of connecting sites to other sites, especially close by. But if anyone's still using these uh, line-of-sight microwave technologies, let us know. Tips at Sophos.com. We'd love to hear how you're using it. Yes. Love to how, know how much of that stuff is still whizzing around inside buildings or between yeah. buildings around the world. Anything that could cook a person at low power, we'd love to hear about it. I think it would be quite low power, Doug. I, I don't think he could have put a steak on a plate uh, <laughs> no. and had his lunch cooked. No, um, sir. Not more than once a decade. But I could see why he would be a bit steamed, figuratively, yeah. if not literally. Exactly. Well, let us know. And also, if you have an oh no that you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.